Hi everybody, Mike here. So glad you're tuning in. Thanks for uh, the opportunity to play a small part on your journey. And um, again, we're always appreciative of feedback and support and all of those sorts of things. Um, particularly, I want to say thank you uh, to those of you who support us financially on Patreon. Um, that is an incredible gift and uh, for which I am very, very grateful. Uh, today, what we want to do is, and the goal, by the way, of the podcast, I mean, the reason we do this is we want to help uh, make people curious about Jesus. So so there is a, an increasing difference between Jesus of Nazareth as he's portrayed in the gospel accounts and the Christian subculture that claims to represent him and that's grown up around him over the last you know 50 years. Um, and so what we what we attempt to do is to try to note the differences between uh, the way Jesus actually was and the way that Jesus is seen and represented in our world today. I've had an interesting article this week. Um, it was in the Atlantic uh, on their website, and it was lessons from atheists. And I always found this, I, I always, you know, I'm a sucker for those sorts of titles, but uh, it was really interesting. So this this group had taken it, um, and I don't remember the details of the article, uh, but this group had formally taken it upon themselves to um, to to kind of seek out why it was that particularly younger atheists had become atheists. And what was fascinating um, is uh, is some of the the feedback they got back. So they they write this article, of course, and it was just I just thought, okay, this is. We're not going to spend a lot of time on this, but I thought this was something that was very, very interesting. Um, one of the things the article noted was that the vast majority of participants in their research um, had chosen atheism in reaction to Christianity. So they'd been exposed to it. They'd been raised in the church. They'd attended church services uh, it was not, they didn't cho choose atheism out of Islam, not out of Buddhism, but out of Christianity, which is, which is fascinating. So, so to, to the idea that, that no one is born an atheist, but you become an atheist in reaction uh, to something, you know, this, this would give a little credence to that idea. And it also kind of wakes us up to the, the idea that the, that the church produces um, atheists at an alarming rate. Um, so, so that was, that was the first thing that was noted. They had attended church, had a spiritual background. The second thing was their mission and message, the miss mission and message of their churches was very vague. In other words, it was, it, it was along the lines of just be better and do better. Um, they, they, you know, they, they, they talked a lot about doing good and being good, but there was no connection between that and Jesus and the Bible and the gospel. Um, and so people walk away from the church because it's, I mean, you don't need the Bible to embark on a uh, self-improvement program or to be kind to people in the world. And so lots of people just wander off if that's the only thing that's distinct uh, about churches. It's just another program of do better and be better. Well, then that's really not uh, unique. Uh, this is a big one. The participants um, felt their churches offered very superficial answers to the most difficult questions of life. And um, and this is a big deal. So, so Vox, 
uh, not not just the podcast, but the church that was birthed that exists in Orange County and kind of every endeavor uh, we've gone after has been an attempt to give people permission to wrestle with questions. And and of course, of course, of course, one of the one of the deadliest things that a church can do is to to not give people room to question or to doubt or to wrestle with mystery and ambiguity. But second, the second most damaging thing, like like very uh, just a little bit behind that, is uh, giving very superficial Bible answer man, you know, thirty second answers to some of life's deepest questions. And so the respondents in, in this research talked about you know the teachings on uh, evolution and creation, sexuality, uh, the teachings of the church on the Bible itself. Those. Uh, were, were some of the biggest mysteries and some of the most perplexing questions and that very often the answers that were given seemed very hollow and very superficial, which, which you know, again, it, it, you want to create an environment where those questions can be asked, but you also want to be the kind of person that is comfortable saying, I don't know. Andy, Laura, um, our friend Andy has this great thing he took away from working in an Apple store years and years and years ago. And he, and he brought it to the church community we started. It was, it was this answer. If, if you as an Apple employee, I don't know if they still do this or teach this, but if you as an Apple employee were uh, stumped on a question, the answer that you would give is you wouldn't pretend, you wouldn't bluff, you wouldn't make something up to protect your image. You would say, I don't know, but let's go find out together. Which I thought, my goodness, what a great answer for everything. <clears throat> so if you're ever in a situation where somebody asks you a deep theological question and you have no idea, the best thing for you to do is to say, that's a great question. I don't know. Let's find out together, right? I mean, that that is a beautiful expression. And, and Dallas Willard, I mean, I got to quote Dallas Willard. Dallas Willard has this great line, he, he and he would say... Um, he would say to people, I, Jesus would be the first person to tell you that you must ruthlessly follow the truth wherever it leads. And, and so th there's this great, it's not just permission that we give, but it's let's embark on this journey together. That, that I don't have to feel like I have to have all the answers uh, to give. I don't have to feel like I have to have all the uh, deep questions solved and all my own doubts you know, reconciled before I can go out and, and point people to the beauty and the majesty of Jesus, right? I mean, there's there's a beautiful, beautiful way in which we can simply say to people who ask us questions that are too big for us, not only it honors the question, but it, it shows that we're not willing to settle for superficial either. So I, I just love this idea that uh, that the way that we posture ourselves to people who are who are questioning, doubting, um, who are very skeptical, isn't that we're threatened and defensive, but rather that Jesus is the kind of person that would, would encourage us to follow the truth. Now, obviously, for, for those of us who are Jesus followers, we think the truth leads directly to him. Um, but the days of kind of hammering at people with our apologetic proofs and our, you know, irrefutable um, uh, arguments for the existence of God. I mean, I think those days are mostly over uh, because I think we could convince people rationally that it makes sense and they would yawn um, and uh, and continue to point out the hypocrisy of the church. And the, and the, the idea now, of course, is that if following Jesus makes you a worse kind of person, which 
would it would have been uh, un, unbelievable in the first century. It was exactly the opposite. The following Jesus made you a different, unique, holy kind of person that stood out from society. Now, um, following Jesus makes us a worse kind of person, which you know is is kind of what is the 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 root of some of this new atheism is getting at. Um, the the participants in the study um, all all were. Um, all identified the ages of 14 to 17 as being very formative and very uh, decisive about their spiritual journey. So this again, when we are when we have uh, youth programs that are designed it's primarily to attract and entertain kids, but not to spiritually ground them or allow them to wrestle with deep things. Uh, when we have when we have churches who are uh, led by 50-year-olds for 50-year-olds without any thought of the next generation um, and any willingness to sacrifice in order to reach the next generation, uh, you've, got, you've got a generation of, of kids that simply will look elsewhere. And in fact, where they look is the internet. And so that was one of the things that came back from uh, this crew was that it wasn't the books by Richard Dawkins or Sam Harris or those guys that was so significant. It was the fact that uh, there were internet lectures and there were internet forums and there were community groups and uh, all those sorts of things. So I just thought that was an interesting um, uh, article that was thought-provoking and, and for me kind of reinforced some convictions um, uh, about the way we need to approach this thing. I mean, the, the whole Vox community birth in orange county was built around three convictions uh the church should be the safest place to talk about anything and be messy the church should should spare um nothing in the pursuit of capturing the hearts and the minds of the next generation and the church's posture to the world must be one of love and service not judgment and condemnation and i and i and i you know that's that's not a recipe for perfection and i'm certainly you know we're we're certainly flawed in the way that everything um, worked itself out, but but there's something I think sitting there that that this validates for me uh, in terms of how it is that the church needs to approach people who aren't in its doors, and then the recognition that we do have um, we're we're not just doing services for the faithful um, and the already convinced that there are people sitting there who are asking these big and deep questions, and yes, they need. Um, they need clarity on who Jesus is. And of course, uh, they need wisdom. But, but one of the things they also need is simply permission to, to wander a bit and to ask and to, to be told that, you know, there are some things that you simply cannot perfectly and satisfactorily explain, but there's enough to go on. And so anyway, I uh, thought it was interesting. Another thing I saw on Twitter um, is uh is a tweet that said this this is from a professing christian and um and this is kind of where we'll spend some time uh today the the tweet was from a professing christian prove to me that the bible says i must value black lives and hate ethnic supremacy now we're recording the week uh, about a year after the charlottesville um, stuff that went on and, uh, and so this has all been revisited pretty significantly in the last week. And of course, there are many Christians, myself among them, who are out um, simply saying 
Um, no, this racial reconciliation thing is super important. So I love this question. Prove to me that the Bible says I must value black lives and hate ethnic supremacy. Okay. Now, I doubt many of my uh, listeners, many of the Vox listeners would like ever say anything like this. But that sentiment certainly is out there. And I think we need to have a better answer than just, um, well, you're a narrow-minded bigot, so you don't have anything to say. Uh, no, I think there's I think there's some biblical teaching to do. And, and again, it's not done. This isn't one of those mysteries. This is, this is pretty clear um, in the scriptures. And so if I, if, if I were sitting across from somebody who said, okay, prove to me that the Bible says I must value black lives and hate ethnic supremacy, like here's a little bit of what I would do. I would start always uh, in Genesis chapter one, when it says, um, when God says, let us make humanity in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea and the birds and the livestock and over the creatures that move along the ground. I would take that very central idea uh, that human beings are created in the image and the likeness of God. Now, image and likeness, as we've talked about lots of times before on the podcast, are temple words. They asellum is, is one of the words, I think it's the word for image. Um, the, the people of God were prohibited of making images of God um, because God didn't appear to them using any image. Um, and so with the fascinating Old Testament teaching is there was no image of God, no selim of God that was allowed except these human persons themselves who were indeed images and likenesses of God. And in fact, we have historical records of other kings uh, and rulers in the ancient Near East setting up statues or likenesses of themselves in ancient temples to declare their sovereignty over um, uh, their territory. And similarly, what, what Yahweh is conveying in the Old Testament is the idea that these image bearers are um, administrators, they're co-governors, they're vice regents, they, they're cooperative participants in the administration of God's rule over the earth. So image and likeness, man, those are, those are pretty, pretty big words. Um, so it says God created humanity in his own image. In the image of God, he created them male and female. He created them. And then he commissions them to be fruitful and fill the earth, rule over it, so on, so on, so on. They were to be small versions, faint echoes of what God himself was like. They, God created, so they are to create. God rested, they were to rest. I mean, it's this beautiful image. And there's utterly no distinction. Every human person ever made, regardless of their functionality, skin color, whatever, um, is made in God's image. Now, one of the things that becomes clear as you go through the scripture is that that, that the human beings, every human being is, treated, is to be uh, treated with very specific dignity and honor because they bear the image of God. So in Genesis chapter 9, after Noah and the ark and the whole flood narrative, there is uh, the reaffirmation of this calling to Noah and his family. Be fruitful and increase in number, fill the earth. Um, everything that moves you know, will be given as food for you. Um, he, but he says, but you must not eat meat that has its lifeblood in it. And for your lifeblood, I will surely demand an accounting. I will demand an accounting from every animal and from every human being too. I will demand an accounting for the life of another human being. Now, different from the animals, we have this break and there's a bit of poetry 
Um, and, and whenever you see poetry in the old Testament, that is, that is a very, like, that is a very yellow blinking light telling you this is super important. Um, when the, uh, so in justification of the idea that you should not take another human's life, the text says, whoever sheds human blood by humans shall their blood be shed for in the image of God has God made mankind or humanity. So the idea, of course, is the reason uh, the penalty was so severe for the taking of another human's life is because that human was made in the image of God. And, and we can get into capital punishment at another time and whether that's something that's still relevant or was repudiated by Jesus. But the idea is that because every human person is made in the image of God, you shall not murder. End of story. And if you do murder, your life will be forfeit as well. Now, James in the New Testament applies this to slander and gossip and the cursing of other people. He has this big riff in James 3 about the power of words, the power of the tongue. And he says, with the tongue, we praise our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse human beings who have been made in God's likeness. Out of the same mouth come praise and cursing, my brothers and sisters, this should not be. The idea is that one of the uh, one of underlying the ethical teaching of love your neighbor as yourself and treat others as you would want to be treated. I mean, that baseline bedrock of, of biblical ethics um, is simply the idea that the reason you do this is because human persons are made in the image of God and how you treat uh, the images of the creator says something about your respect for the creator. And so the idea... Um, is that you would respect every human person without qualification in the scriptures made in the divine image of God, should be respected, not cursed, not murdered, and so on. Now, what God does um, in, in response to the flood narrative and to the Tower of, of Babel in that episode in Genesis like 9 through 11 is that God begins to form a, a great nation. He calls a man named Abram. And, and says, this guy was old, um, his wife was infertile, they were beyond childbearing age. God promises, I'm going to make you into a great nation, baby. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And through you, all the nations, uh, the ethnic groups on the earth will be blessed. So God chooses a man and a woman to build into a nation. Now, the idea is that this nation would not exist in some superior sense in relationship to the other nations, but would rather exist as a magnet drawing the nations to the worship of Yahweh. In fact, Isaiah chapter 2, here's this vision of God's dream for the nations. All right, In the last days, the mountain of the Lord's temple will be established as the highest of mountains. It will be exalted above the hills, and all nations will stream to it. Many people will come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the temple of the God of Jacob. He will teach us his ways so that we may walk in his paths. Um, he will judge between nations and settle disputes for many peoples. And then they, the nations, will beat their swords into farming implements, their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor they will train for war anymore. So the idea is that the, the blessing, the shalom that was to come, that God intended that would come from the descendants of Abram, wasn't just peace with God, but it was peace with their neighbor nations, that war would be something that no longer existed. And so on the one hand, 
God clearly teaches that every person bearing the image of God, every person bears the image and that image must be respected. It's the baseline for dignity and worth and honor, regardless of how efficient, regardless of how effective, regardless how attractive, regardless of the skin color or tone or whatever else does not matter. But then secondly, in a fallen world where the nations are now at war with each other, apart from God, God's dream for the nations through this nation Israel was to, was to have shalom, that the, that the wholeness of God would rest over the earth and the nations would be at peace. So, so very early in the story, the idea is presented that, that God just doesn't want people to reconcile just to him, but to reconcile to each other. And to do that, uh, they must give up their claim to any sense of superiority or chosenness or whatever. And now, now by Jesus's day, um, there were all sorts of divisions that the Roman Empire had introduced, but even some um, Jews had introduced. And, and one of the remarkable things, if you just go through one of the Gospels of Jesus, are all of the ethnic categories and the religious categories that he breaks. Um, you know, the Jews uh, distinguish, not, and again, I say the Jews, I just mean some particular groups of, of the Jews in Judaism did this. Uh, and Jesus was very, very deliberate in undercutting these distinctions. So they would distinguish between the clean and unclean. Jesus would go around touching the unclean. You were not allowed to touch the unclean. Jesus would touch them. They would become clean. He didn't play by the rules. There, of course, was the, the main difference between Jew and Gentile. Gentile just means non-Jew. And, and, of course, during Jesus' ministry, although he clearly says he's here first for the Jew um, to renew Israel and to restore it, there, along the way, he's, he's uh, praising uh, non-Jewish people. He comes across a centurion uh, whose servant he heals and then says, I've not found such great faith in Israel. He comes across a Syrophoenician woman that he has this banter back and forth with and, and ends up healing, I think it's her daughter. And, and so Jesus is breaking those ethnic categories. And then, and then when Jesus has died, he's risen from the dead, he commands his disciples to go into all the nations and to preach the gospel. So, so that was the fulfillment of the promise to Abraham way back in Genesis 12. Um, you, have, you have Jesus um, teaching and honoring and respecting what were called the Amha Aretz, the poor, the people of the land. Um, you have people respond, or you have Jesus responding to priests um, all, uh, or religious leaders. You have people responding to Samaritans, which was this huge ethnic, I mean, they were half-breeds. By, uh, considered by some of the Jews. I mean, a huge deal that the Good Samaritan is a Good Samaritan. Um, I mean, Jesus, Jesus responded to men and to women and to Gentiles, the unclean, the diseased, the poor, the demon-possessed. I mean, it was absolutely ridiculous. And then, when Jesus ascends, he gives this commission to go preach the gospel to the nations, and then he pours out his spirit upon them. And then the book of Acts is just like one of the gospels in the following respect, that the book of Acts now demonstrates the power and the message and the presence of Jesus expanding beyond the ethnic categories of the early Christians. So Jesus said, listen, you're going to take, you're going to preach this message in Jerusalem where Jesus had just been crucified in Judea, which was the surrounding area. Then you were going to go to Samaria, which, which again, you hated the Samaritans and then to the ends of the earth. I mean, this was breaking every ethnic category. And in the book of Acts, you have this, these early church leaders who love Jesus and are devoted to him, but they still haven't figured out yet the radical nature 
of the promise of God to pour out uh, the Holy Spirit to anyone who calls upon Jesus, Jew and Gentile alike. And so you have, um, you, you have uh, I think it's Peter and John seeing that the, the God, the, that the Holy Spirit is being poured out on Gentiles. You have a guy named Philip, a very Jewish man named Philip, seeing here's the Spirit being poured out on an Ethiopian eunuch, which was two strikes against that person. You, you have the, the gospel expanding across all ethnic categories. And Paul, this, this man that boasts about what a good Jewish man he was, being the ambassador to the Gentiles, and then writing things like... Um, for Jesus himself is our peace, who has made the two groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility between them by setting aside in his flesh through the crucifixion, the law with its commands and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two previous groups, just making peace and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross, by which he put to death their hostility. He preached, he came and preached peace to those of you who are far away, and peace to those of you who are near, for through him we both now have access to the Father by the Spirit. I mean, this, and this comes right after, so this is in Ephesians chapter 2, and Paul begins in Ephesians chapter 1, by giving this beautiful picture of the gospel, you were once prisoners and captives and you were once objects of wrath but now because of the mercy and grace of god you you have been brought near you it is by grace you have been saved not through faith and this of your art it is by grace you've been saved not through works hello uh but by faith and, and so it's this epic like here's how you be made right with god and then immediately immediately after that he begins to talk about how that reunification between the self and God now results in the unification of, of human persons. And the example he gives are the, the Jews and the Gentiles who shared a great deal of animosity against each other. And he argues that Jesus' death has made peace, eradicated the dividing wall between them, and have has instead created one new humanity. So what he's saying, and this is so important, he's not saying, hey, there are Jews who become Christians and they're Jewish Christians. There are Gentiles who become Christians and they're Gentile Christians. Instead, God's plan was to create a new humanity where the previous distinctions no longer applied or held any weight. So in Galatians, uh, Paul will say, uh, in Christ Jesus, you are all children of God through faith. For all of you who were baptized into Christ have clothed yourselves with Christ. Christ is now your identity. So there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave nor free, male or female. You are all one in Christ Jesus. Or in Colossians 3, he says, Put on the new self, which is being renewed in knowledge in the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and in all. I mean, he's arguing that the, that the uh, ethnic distinctions that we've carried that have held power in our world are eradicated. Now, that doesn't mean we don't see color. Of course we see color. And, and it doesn't mean that there aren't differences. Of course there are differences. But what he's saying is the ethnic judgments that we make apart from Christ have no place in his kingdom. John puts it very clearly. Anybody who says, I love God, but hates his brother or sister in his heart is a liar and the truth is not in them. End of story. End of story. Now, by brother and sister, I think here he means fellow believer. But if you're going to claim ethnic superiority, 
then you've got to claim ethnic superiority regardless of whether or not someone else is a follower of Jesus. And, um, and so for me, to, to have somebody say, hey, prove to me from the Bible, well, I mean, listen, you, if you hold the view that one race is superior to another, you are literally anti-Christ. I mean, end of story. There isn't, there, there's no, this isn't a murky issue in the Bible. That, that, that part and parcel of the gospel of Jesus is the reconciliation of us, not only to God, but to each other. And so Paul will say in 2 Corinthians, from now on, we regard no one from a worldly point of view. Now, what's a worldly point of view? A worldly point of view is, I see male and female, Jew or Greek, slave or free. Right? That's, I'm operating by the old distinctions and making value judgments accordingly. Though we once regarded Christ in this way, Paul says, we do so no longer. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, new creation has come. The old is gone, the new is here. All of this is from God, who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That God was reconciling the world to himself in Christ, not counting people's sins against them. And when that happens, when the, the world is reconciled to Jesus, necessarily, and as part of the same gospel, is the reconciliation of people to each other. And so, so and the Bible ends then with this beautiful picture in Revelation, Revelation chapter 5, where uh, the Lamb, Jesus is presented in Revelation in a lot of different ways, but one of the overriding images is that of a Lamb who was sacrificed. And, um, and so they're the, the nations, well, I think in this case, it could be the elders, but the elders, I think are singing a, a song of praise to, uh, the lamb. And they say, you are worthy to take the scroll, another image in revelation and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. Now think about that. Right? So the idea tribe literally means race, tribe, or class. So, so every tribe, so when John's writing under the influence of the Roman Empire and its, its divisions, for him to see something like this would have been incredibly subversive. Because you had citizen, non-citizen, you had male versus female, you had slave versus free. I mean, all these things that Paul was writing against are existing and John sees an image of the end. And the image of the end, of course, is that all the people are, are together work, worshiping God. Every tongue, every tribe. Um, class, I mean, so you, so you not just have, you don't just have ethnicity, but you had class, right? So you had um, a rich, poor, educated, uneducated, master, slave. Um, there were all sorts of division. It's not just that every race, but every class Every language, literally every tongue or every speech, there'll be all sorts of accents in heaven, all sorts of people, the common people, the masses, the, the, the new humanity is not people who have things in common. The new humanity is when people sit down and have nothing in common but Jesus. That's the new humanity from every ethnic group. So the, the issue is, and, and I don't know, and I can't say definitively how all this works, but one of the overriding images of, of what life is like with God in the age to come is that of a feast, uh, sitting in a banquet table. And if you're uncomfortable sitting with people from other tribes, nations, languages now, it's going to be a shock for you. I, I sat in a church yesterday, recording this on a Monday that's in Columbus, that I'm, I'm so very proud of. Um, this church is a mega church. 
and had shifted. And I don't remember what the previous percentage was, but it was like 80% white, 20% non-white, or, or maybe it was even more uh, white, um, like 85% or something. But it was really, it was a very significant difference. Columbus is one of the most segregated cities in the United States. So I live in a middle-class white pocket um, uh, in Columbus, and uh, you've got loads of those, and you've got loads of places that are, you know, they're, they're filled with Somali refugees or African-Americans or whatever, and it's incredibly segregated. It's just so discouraging. But this church, so we went to this church, and um, first thing you noticed is it's, it's 50 50. It's, it's white, non white. And uh, they were saying, I was talking to somebody, they said 140 nations are um, in, their, uh, in their congregation, which is, which is incredible. And, um, and so to hear, so we, we show up and we see this beautiful diversity. I mean, it's unbelievably colorful. I love it. And, and so we're singing these songs together. And we're not just singing white hill songy so so it's this beautiful mix and and i've got these african-american women around me yelling and shouting and amening and and um and i'm i'm just i i'm just thrilled not because i'm so woke this isn't a story about how woke mike is because i'm certainly not i i have a long way to go on so many things but but this church was such a blessing because it reflected the new humanity. It was you, you could tell that, that 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 just didn't happen. People had to give uh, in order to make something like that happen, right? You 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 couldn't. You had to give up, and they lost thousands of people to become uh, a church that's fifty percent non-white, and I mean, which is horrifying. I mean, it's unbelievable. But the thing that was so cool, and I I bring in this story up just to tell this point. Uh, they served the Lord's Supper, and what they did is they had a, a woman from the Philippines share. Uh, so she read. So they put a passage up from First Peter, and then um, and then this this Filipino woman um, she read the text in her native language, which was so amazing. Well, we're following along in English, and it was very very cool. And then, even though we had these little cups with wafers kind of built in. Um, the, the, the white woman and the, the Filipino lady, um, they shared the cup, like they drank out of the, the same cup. I mean, it was just this beautiful, like, oh, that's really, really cool. And I was so fired up, um, uh, because, because there was just something, there was something about that, that added worship and power. And there was something about it that was, that was that was really, really beautiful. I was so fired up um, out of that. And then I saw this tweet. <laughs> and I was like, well, I think maybe we can prove to you that, that uh, the Bible, uh, there is no place, utterly no place that, that um, racism exists. So yes, you must value black lives. Yes, if you are a follower of Jesus and you say you love God, but hate your black brother or sister, you are a liar and the truth of God is not in you. In I've been saying this a lot, but end of story. I mean, it's it's literally that clear. Now, that doesn't mean we're not in process, and that doesn't mean we're not repenting, and it takes time. But to sit in um, in such sort of animosity and hatred and to claim uh, that you're part of the family of God, I mean, just it just contradicts it contradicts this major thread throughout the whole scripture. So to me, and something that's been super enlightening for me has been um, my brother 
is one of the whitest men in the history of the planet. He married one of the darkest um, African-American women that is on the planet. And, and it is absolutely uh, beautiful. But, the, but some of the stories that my brother will tell about some of the reaction they get from being an interracial couple. Um, she's a doctor. And so some of the reaction she gets from, from being an African-American doctor, I mean, it's, it's, it's absolutely crazy. Now, obviously culture has a long way to go, but when the church is a purveyor of racism, um, then we've truly, we're truly working against the purpose and mission of Jesus in the world. So for, for me, I sit in all of this stuff and it's so easy to engage in something called virtue signaling. I don't know if you've heard this term, but it's, it's when every, uh, every outrage, you have to post something on social media showing that you're on the right side of history. So, so virtue signaling is just a way to let everybody know that I think that that thing is horrible, right? So, so that protest is despicable and this, what this person said is awful. And it's, it's a way to kind of um, let people know um, your, your political views, your theological views. And, and I'd love to do a whole episode on this because it's super easy. I mean, you just, you know, change your flag, you change your profile picture on Facebook and boom, you virtual signaled that you're standing with the people of France or you retweet something and you've sit, you virtue signaled, you know, that you're anti-Trump or for, for Trump or whatever. But the, the, very, the very damaging cost of virtue signaling, of course, is that it's just mere pretense. That, that um, virtue signaling is a lot easier than actually loving your neighbor who's not like you. And, and if you're progressive, virtue signaling is, is, you know, you're lauded for virtue signaling. But the issue is, do you love the Trump supporter next door? Do you love the Trump supporter across the table from you? Right? I don't care about how virtuous your tweets are if you hate the Trump supporter across the table from you. I mean, right? I mean, that's, that's the test. <laughs> it's, not, it's not how great you're doing on social media. Um, it's loving your neighbor as yourself, even if your neighbor turns out to be your enemy. And so I, I think for all of us, there's this temptation to be seen. It's not just the, to be virtuous, but it's to be seen to be virtuous. And that is the tragic danger of social media and engaging in a platform where we only present certain parts of ourselves for the world to see. So the call for me, the, 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 the takeaway the take for me isn't to just announce, hey man, I'm, I'm really woke on all this stuff, which I just think, golly, what a horrible, what a horrible way to virtue signal. Um, to me, it's much more radical uh, than that. It really is to say, okay, um, where are my blind spots? Are there people in my life that know me well enough that, that could and would be willing to call me on stuff that they see or hear? Um, I mean, it's that sort of work. It's, it's the idea that of cultivating friendships that are so different from the kind of friendships that come naturally. It's finding church fellowships that aren't all our um, ethnic tribe, right? It's listening. Uh, so in my case, it's listening to African-American podcasts, Latino podcasts. Um, it's, it's a reading authors that aren't just white evangelicals. It's, um, it's listening to perspectives. And, that, and, and again, that's not wokeness to me. That, that's what it is to love our neighbor. And the reason Black Lives Matter um, and the reason we say that right now is uh, I think there are many people who think they don't. And um, so it's not Black Lives Matter versus all the other lives. 
It's that no, black lives seem to be singled out in, in horrific ways um, as not mattering. And it needs to be said and it needs to be shouted and it needs to be preached and it needs to be taught. But most of all, it needs to be embodied. And how we do that, well, we need help. For those of us uh, in a majority culture, it is, I need help um, on what that looks like and feels like and sounds like. So my brothers and sisters, uh, as always, hope this was helpful. Thanks for tuning in. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord shine his face upon you and be gracious to you. May the Lord lift up his countenance to you and may he give you peace in these days. Until next time, my friends, thank you.